Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. San Francisco, I'm Marisa Lagos and Fermina Kim. Children have borne an unusually heavy burden during the pandemic. They went to school remotely, they missed milestones like graduation or holidays with family, they lost loved ones. And schools have been among the last places to begin relaxing pandemic restrictions like masking. We'll talk about the toll on kids and what we've learned about how to support them. This is Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos and Fermina Kim. From closed schools to missed moments like graduation or visiting with family, the pandemic has taken an exacting toll on children. Kids were among the last to get vaccinated, and even as businesses reopened, they were unable to go to school in person. They've lost caregivers and loved ones. And on the educational front, studies report that across the nation, early reading seals are at a new low. And kids of all ages are more stressed and anxious than ever. But while the pandemic has been hard on children, there have also been lessons learned about grace, kindness, and how to do better by our children. We're going to look at the price kids have paid in the pandemic and what parents and others can do to support them now. Joining us for this hour are Dr. Denise Clark-Pope, senior lecturer at Stanford University School of Education and co-founder of Challenge Success, which works with students and families to develop research-based strategies that provide kids with the academic, social, and emotional skills needed to succeed. Good morning, Denise. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Also with us is Dr. Janelle Scott, professor in the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Education and the African-American Studies Department. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Marisa. And also with us is Dr. Susan Wilkins, psychologist in family practice specializing in children and family therapy. Dr. Wilkins previously worked in the psychiatry department at the Oakland Children's Hospital. Good morning, Susan. Good morning. Happy to be here. Well, very excited for this uh, amazing panel of all women doctors and uh, experts. Um, Susan Wilkins, I'd love to start with you, um, which is kind of the big picture question of what do you see as the biggest impacts on kids from this challenging period? And maybe a little bit about what that tells you about how we as a society kind of treat and prioritize children. Mm. Well, We've been living with prolonged uncertainty for over two years. And I think as we all know, as we've learned from the social experiment, we're not wired to be in a threat mindset for so long. We're wired to be social, to be connected, 
to be caring. And obviously our children took the hardest hit because schools were impacted the most. Many of us just went to, you know, I, I turned my business over over a weekend and suddenly was doing my work online. Mm-hmm. Children's lives were really derailed by this. And, and clearly, as we can see with the schools being the last places where masks are coming off, their lives have been derailed the most and the long-term impacts for them have been the hardest. They're still developing. Their minds are still young and vulnerable and making sense of all this. And they've looked to the adults around them who've been struggling. We've this is our first time doing this. You know, we've all been figuring this out as we go. And so our kids have, you know, not only suffered because their lives have been so derailed, but also because the adults around them have been really struggling. Yeah. Dr. Denise Clark Pope, I mean, we know that there has been a lot of you know, studies and research showing increased depression, mental health, anxiety challenges um, of kids of all ages. And I want later in the hour, I think we should talk a little bit about, you know, teenagers and adolescents versus younger kids, because there's some different challenges. But in general, I mean, is a lot of this from the isolation that we saw, especially the first year of pandemic? A lot of it is from the isolation, right? We, we are social creatures and particularly kids learn a lot from their peers. Kids of all ages learn a lot from their peers, but they also, as Dr. Wilkins said, really pick up on our cues. And so the stress, the uncertainty, the lack of routine, the, uh, the fear of what's going to come next. Every time you think you're back to normal, your school might close and you go home again, right? Or you haven't been in school this whole time. And so you sort of forget what it's like and and how to interact. That's why we're seeing some of the issues that we're seeing now with the, the, the bigger kids, as you said. I mean, they're, the violence, the, the bullying, the fact that they really haven't had adults checking in with them regularly, that all led to those feelings of stress as well. And do we have a sense, uh, Dr. Clark Pope, if if this is changing as, you know, this school year in most places, schools have managed to stay open, save for some, you know, closures and quarantines. But do we feel like that is helping or, I mean, is it just such a setback that kids sort of lost out on a year or two of the social development? I think socially, it's definitely helping that schools are staying open. They're staying open with fewer closures. Um, some schools are getting rid of masks outside. Some schools have been getting rid of masks for a while now inside. Depends where, where, where you are. And I think most of the kids are saying, you know, thank goodness I'm back. Thank goodness I'm with my peers. Thank goodness the extracurriculars have opened up, the sports, the music, the drama. The, what they used to say to us is all the fun parts of school were taken out. And now they are getting back to some kind of routine. And it is absolutely helping them. I mean, I feel like that's the same for adults, too, right? It's like we've all done, been having to do the normal things to keep the world running. But there was that loss of, the, yeah, the thing, the rewards for that, the social interactions, those small, you know, ways that you just pass someone in the office. Um, Dr. Janelle Scott, can, can you talk a little bit, too, though, about how the bigger economic challenges of this time have impacted kids, especially kids already on the margins and, you know, low income families, um, because this has been such a, a sort of weird period economically for this nation? It has, and I I think you can't talk about education um, across the spectrum from, you know, pre-K through kindergarten and high school into uh, uh, college um, without talking about uh, inequality, economic inequality, and how the pandemic has really um, not only affected people quite differently on the economic spectrum, but exacerbated um, these existing inequalities. And... um, 
you know, I think in particular, we, we're talking about um, a scale of death and illness that none of us have ever experienced uh, in our lifetime that is ongoing and um, that is being experienced also disproportionately. And so, you know, the data from the American Academy of Pediatrics uh, uh, shows us that over uh, 145,000 children in the U.S. alone have lost a parent or caregiver to COVID. Um, and so that's devastating. And we're so we have to think about um you know, not only the loss of loved ones, but the loss of incomes, the loss of housing security and food security, uh, and the fact that children are bringing these very deep and acute needs uh, with them to school. Yeah. And uh, sticking with you for a second, Dr. Scott, I mean, do you feel that schools are equipped to handle this? I mean, here in the Bay Area, we're seeing deep budget challenges in places like Oakland and San Francisco. I know, you know, watching the process play out here at my own kids' school, we're also seeing a lot of attrition among teachers and staff because it's just been so tough. So, like, it it feels like we're at the exact moment where there needs to be more support that we're not necessarily equipped to deal with it. I don't think that we have equipped our schools to deal with it. I think that there are very well-meaning and committed adults within schools, including teachers, um, custodians, uh, school leaders who very much want to do right by our children, but who are being given, um, you know, a very challenging task um, to uh, to fill in the gaps that our society has not provided. Uh, so we know that when children experience trauma, um, that can be the loss of a loved one. It can be long-term illness of a loved one. Um, and we know that long COVID is, is an issue that we need more school counselors. We need school psychologists. We need school nurses. Um, and yet we can look across the barrier and find schools that have none of those um, consistently and didn't have them before COVID and, and that we have not equipped them uh, to deal with what this reality is. And that, you know, COVID is ongoing. That we, we, we are losing 10,000 people a week still. And so I think very often when we talk about test scores or academic progress, which are certainly important things to think about, I know parents care about it, I care about it. Um, we, we often forget that children are still coping with death and we're, we're not giving them what they need to try and contend with what's going on all around them. Absolutely. Um, I wonder if... Um... Well, Susan, Susan Wilkins, I know, you know, you have worked in the psychiatry department at Oakland Children's Hospital. And one figure that just shocked me as I was preparing for this was that there was a 30 percent increase in emergency room visits for suspected suicide attempts um, during the pandemic. What are you yes. seeing in your practice? And and talk specifically about teenagers and sort of the, the social and, and mental That's health challenges true. they're facing. Well, I think it's always important, even though these statistics are really concerning, and they are real. There is, you know, the rise in emergency room visits for suicide, as well as for eating disorders, and particularly among adolescent girls. Um, So that is real. And I also always want to remind folks that suicide was on the rise before the pandemic. Mm. This has provided a great opportunity to start talking about this, to normalize it, to bring it into the light. But we should have been talking about this anyway. And I think one of the most important you know, messages that I give to parents is bringing this up isn't planting an idea. It's not encouraging it. It's making it okay to talk about it. So it's, it's a myth we have about suicide. Maybe if I don't mention it, my child will never think about it. But it's actually really important to start to name this, to start to normalize this. And of course, if a child ever comes to you with any mention of wanting to hurt themselves, um, we have to, as parents, take a deep breath and really listen and thank them for telling us. 
and reassuring them that you know we can work on this and and we can make it better. So I, I am seeing um, an increase in suicidal thoughts that I would say is more around this kind of collective sense of grief and loss. And I'm also seeing kids fall into sort of three buckets. You know, one group of kids are just feeling very stuck, sort of that place of languishing. And then there are kids who are so beyond over this that they're pushing boundaries. They're really scrambling to make up for lost time socially. And then there are kids who are still really worried, kids who maybe had a family member who was vulnerable or maybe had a pre-existing mental health diagnosis of anxiety. So they've been really having a hard time moving out of this yeah. and they're not getting back to socializing as they did two years ago. And that's, that's probably one of my most concerning buckets is, is really trying to encourage these kids to see the costs of all this disconnection, the costs of this isolation, and to, to, to keep reminding them, this isn't normal. Mm-hmm. Not wanting to be with your friends, feeling too tired to be with your friends, feeling exhausted by being your friends. It's it's understandable, and we need to get back into the gym socially. We're out of practice. Absolutely. And I want to talk a little bit more about how we have those conversations. We're going to take a break in a moment, but we also want to hear from our listeners. What has your child's experience been during COVID? How have you helped them through it? What are some lessons you've learned while parenting during the pandemic that you'll keep using? And do you have any questions for our expert panel? You can give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We are at KQED Forum. And you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I'm Risa Lagos in Fermina Kim today. We are talking about the burden that has been put on kids during this pandemic and how we can help them heal as we move forward. (laughs) Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos and Fermina Kim, and we're talking this morning about the pandemic's toll on on kids and how we can support them with Dr. Denise Clark-Pope, senior lecturer at Stanford University School of Education, Dr. Janelle Scott, professor in the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Education and African American Studies Department, and Dr. Susan Wilkins, psychologist in family practice specializing in children and family therapy. Dr. Pope, I know you uh, have conducted some research 
research around how the pandemic affected teens with stress and lack of engagement. What did you find? Well, we actually were in a position set up already with the uh, research community to do this study and compare kids before the pandemic to during the pandemic. So in the fall of 2020, we looked at 10,000 high school students all over the U.S., very diverse in terms of socioeconomic status. And we saw exactly what Dr. Wilkins was saying, that the stress has gone up since the pandemic. The females were struggling more than males. And what was really upsetting to us as educators is there was a real lack of engagement in school. We've always seen a lack of engagement in school to some degree with kids prior to the pandemic, prior to March 2020. But this was pretty astonishing. Our disengagement, which meant they didn't care about school uh, at all, affectively, behaviorally, cognitively, that went up as did doing school. And doing school is sort of like just playing the game, going through the motions, but not really enjoying it, particularly not really finding it meaningful or valuable. And that went up to over 50% of the kids. Wow. Yeah. And so... I know, Susan Wilkins, you've talked about how teens are now two years behind socially. Um, But Dr. Janelle Scott, we're also seeing with the younger kids learning loss, right? I mean, some one million kids nationally didn't enroll in school this year that were expected to. And a a big portion of that is kindergartners. Where do we think these kids are and and what will this mean for their sort of long-term trajectory? Because we know that early childhood education and development is so important to the longer-term success of these children. We, we do. I think all of those things are, are absolutely correct. I think, um, you know, many parents are making, are being forced to make these very hard decisions about what to do um, on behalf of their children, what's best for their children in a situation that none of us chose. And um, I think this this term learning loss um, ha- has been very evocative, but I think it hides more than it reveals. Mm. Um, so certainly we're seeing, I, I like to think about it as, you know, on these standardized assessments, largely uh, uh, very narrow assessments focused on literacy and math, we are seeing some concerning trends uh, what's less clear is what to do about that. Uh, and what's less clear is if the what we're seeing on these assessments means that it's permanent, that it's a permanent loss, a permanent delay. And I think uh, we can't know that yet. It certainly, I think, calls for very robust uh, interventions, very robust investments in uh, K-12 schooling. Um, and, and I think there are, are many people who have offered wonderful ideas about how to intervene with very robust um, offerings in terms of curriculum. Uh, Dr. Wilkins and Pope have both mentioned the importance of extracurricular activities mm-hmm. and enrichment um, subjects. I think what we often get pulled to do as educators and as the, an educational policy intervention is to go uh, very quickly to remediation and remedial education and kind of drill and kill, um, which I think can lead to some of the stressors that Dr. Wilkins and Pope have both talked about in terms of children feeling very burnt out and disengaged with schooling. So I think we don't want to do that, but we do want to provide for our children um, everything that we can. Yeah, it strikes me that like just finding sort of joy in some of the Things that we we have to do every day is part of, you know, recovering from all of this. Um, We have a comment from a listener named David who writes, 
Uh, I have an 11-year-old, and he's one of the first of a smartphone generation. Ever since he was five or six, parents and family and friends have been looking at screens. So instead of gathering around watching the TV show as a family, we're now in separate rooms watching on individual screens. He wants to know how they feel this is fracturing our attention span and affecting children during COVID as sort of an overlay to the pandemic. Uh, Anyone want to take that? I'm happy to. Um, First, I would say he is not alone. I send a lot of compassion his way. We are all struggling with this. Um, We are all out of our depths as I think adults dealing with these phones where many of us are having the same issues as our children. And we do need to be mindful of it. We need to focus less in our discussions with our kids on the don'ts and more on the do's. How do we enjoy this phone? but also not let it get in the way of all the other things that are so important to us. And I, I always say to even my own children, I'm not anti-screens. I'm just pro everything else. <laughs> are we crowding out all the good stuff? And if we're crowding it out, we need to, we need to check that. We need to bring it back in. So, you know, he's wise not to get in a power struggle, but I say, you know, let's, let's put away all the little screens and let's all watch one big screen together. Mm-hmm. Or if you can sit with your child, learn the game they're playing, get into it with them. That is a way, I mean, kids get so excited when they see the grownups around them interested in what they may be doing, whether it's a TikTok dance or a, a video game. You know, that connection is still happening with the screen being sort of the fireplace, so to speak. But it's not about the fire. It's about gathering around the fire. Absolutely. And I mean, the, the double-edged sword of that was that I found with you know my young kids that when we were all isolating and really locked down, that you know, screens could be a way to actually connect with friends, right? They could play interactive video games together and things like that. So kind of dialing that back in this moment, I think, is part of the challenge, Dr. Pope. Like, how do we sort of reset? I mean, we have another uh, tweet from a listener who says, wow, your guest just mentioned a few things I've noticed in my child. I thought they were coping reasonably well, all things considered. But the constant chorus of I'm too tired even to hang out with friends now has me anxious. So, uh, Dr. Pope, like, what do you make of that? And because, again, I've seen this among adults, too, like even extroverts. There's a social anxiety that comes with kind of reentering some of these situations we haven't been in in so long. Exactly. And we haven't had time to practice. And I think all of us as adults can remember that first time I actually said, am I talking too much here? Because (laughs) you know, I'm meeting someone and I was just so happy to have a personal connection, right? And then face to face. Um, So I think there is that fear. I think when you haven't seen your buddies for two years in person, or at least a consistent seeing of your buddies for two years in person, people change. A lot happens, particularly to teenagers during puberty. you know, Dr. Wilkins talked about eating disorders and anxiety and, and, and depression. And those aren't something that you can just kind of click away. So I think as a parent, you do want to look for signs that let you know that there are some underlying um, more serious mental health issues. But you also have to understand that there is going to be some hesitancy. There is going to be some time to kind of get back into practice. And I think easing in don't sign them up for all the activities that you know that they were doing before the pandemic. They might not be ready for that kind of schedule. And that kind of schedule actually might not have been healthy pre-pandemic. Let's ease back in. That's a great point. I feel like, again, personally, I felt that where I was like, wow, we were kind of crazy before. Like, why were we constantly scheduling these young kids? Um, Dr. Susan Wilkins, I want to talk about another aspect of this. And I'm going to use masks as the example because I think it's the most visible one. And, and But like... I've been thinking as we, you know, 
go into a time period here in California where now masks are becoming optional in schools. Like, how do we talk to kids about... I mean, essentially, they were living under this sort of threat at the beginning, especially really young kids being told, you know, stay away, social distance, cover your faces. And now we're trying to ease them out of that. And the pandemic's not fully over. How are you thinking about how to sort of talk to kids that are feel anxious, right, that they are have been told these messages about the threat of this virus for two years? And now we're kind of asking them to return to some sort of normalcy. Well, I think we're going to have a group of kids who are going to be hesitant about taking them off. And we cannot blame those kids. We cannot other those kids. We cannot become tribal about this. Um, we have to, again, shift from that threat mindset to that other part of what makes us human and makes us mammals, which is caring, which is compassion, which is kindness, which is extending understanding. They're going to be kids at school who are so excited to rip those masks off and want to never see them again until perhaps the next surge or variant. And then they're going to be kids who are going to be slow. And I think the kids who are really fast about this, I'm hoping that they can bring in those other kids. I'm hoping that we're not going to see divides among friend groups around this. Mm -hmm. But given the way human nature is, we, we might anticipate that and we might be able to get ahead of it with our kids by talking to them at dinner about this, talking to them about you know who is still wearing masks. What's that like for them? Are, are, how are people treating them? How are you treating them? Can you bring them in? Yeah. And then I think we're going to have to be nimble. We cannot tell kids this is over. They are not trusting the adults around us. We said, it's safe, it's not safe, it's safe, it's not safe. Teenagers are so smart. They know not to believe us if we say, oh, the pandemic's over. They know there could be something else coming down the road. But right now, restrictions have lowered. Risk is moderate. And we can get back out there. And we need to be able to do that. We need to get back to be being caring and be in relationship. And we need to model that for our kids and let them know it's okay to do that now. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it requires a level of sort of flexibility and nuance that we haven't always practiced as adults during this pandemic, right? Um, exactly. Dr. Pope, what about one thing I've noticed with middle schoolers and older kids is that there are some that seem to it like the masks almost to hide behind. And, and we've been talking about social anxiety and things like that. Um, obviously, there are situations where it still makes sense to be masked. But how do you think, you know, especially for teenagers who are maybe already in an awkward phase, we can help them come out of that shell um, and not sort of rely on that as an actual physical sort of manifestation of their anxiety? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, one of the things that we know is key to learning is you have to feel like you belong. You have to feel like you can bring your whole self to the class, that you are respected for who you are, for all your different identities. And I think for a lot of kids, that mask is a way, as you said, to hide. Um, for some kids, the pandemic was actually better for them in terms of not feeling bullied, in terms of Hey, I get to just be me at home and not have to deal with all the social nightmares of, you know, middle school and who am I going to sit next to at lunch and who's going to make fun of me. So there is that real fear there. And I think, again, we have to sort of get back into practice. One of the things that we work with teachers to do is to increase feelings of belonging in their own classrooms that kids really can't learn unless they feel like you have their back as an adult. During the pandemic, what was pretty shocking is about a quarter of the kids, about 25% in our study said 
the teachers really didn't check in with them and they didn't feel comfortable going to an adult, you know, if they had a problem. So one of the things we're working on with the schools in the Challenge Success Program is how do you make every kid feel safe? How do you make every kid feel like they belong? And how do you work on peer relations, right? As part of a curriculum of a school, how do you help uh, students understand how to treat one another with care and with respect so that kids really do feel more comfortable taking those masks off? Absolutely. I mean, Dr. Janelle Scott, there's also obviously kids who might have immunocompromised folks at home. Um, You know, every community is different in terms of the risk level. What would you say is the right way to also to talk to kids, you know, both about sort of managing that risk, but if they're in a situation where they feel like they should still be masking, to kind of talking to their peers about it? I think, yes, following this theme of of caring and community that that we're hearing, um, I think this idea about risk, um, one of the challenges in this pandemic is that it's been such an individualized conversation about what risk any one family or person feels comfortable with. What we know is that children under five are still ineligible for the vaccines. um, And we know that immunocompromised people uh, remain vulnerable. And so I think one one of the ways um, that we have an incredible opportunity to talk to our children about community care is, you know, as the risk lowers for uh, many healthy people, people who have access to healthcare, there are still people within our communities who are deeply vulnerable. And how can we show care for them? Um, That can be in showing compassion for people who very much want to continue wearing masks to protect their loved ones uh, and themselves. It could be compassion for teachers who also are at risk within schools and other adults within schools. And so I I think if we move beyond, we certainly have to consider um, the needs of individuals, but moving beyond individuals to the needs of communities. And given what we know about racial disproportionality in COVID, particularly in death and long-term illness, we know that communities of color um, who are also living in poverty are just much more vulnerable. Um, And because our schools and our society are so uh, deeply racially and socioeconomically segregated, those vulnerabilities might not be easily apparent uh, to many families. Absolutely. I want to bring in a caller. Amanda from San Francisco is on the line. Amanda, go ahead. Hi. Just first of all, I want to thank you so much for this conversation. I'm really grateful to hear this as a parent. Um, And I'm curious, throughout history, the imperative has always been to protect our babies and our kids. And this was really flipped during COVID. Kids were asked to sacrifice to protect adults. Um, And I think a lot of us with kids had this bizarre experience of watching our older parents taking a lot of risks during COVID while we (laughs) kept our kids home and out of school. Um, And and so I'm just curious, now that there's just so much evidence that kids are at a lot less risk from COVID, how can we reset these societal norms and and resume looking at our kids' well-being as more than just the absence of one disease? Absolutely. I think that's a great question. Dr. Wilkins, how are you thinking about that? Because it's true. I mean, you know, back to masks, just because it's an easy one. It's like we schools are the last place where we're taking them off. Right. Like we have asked kids uh, to bear a lot of the sort of non-pharmaceutical interventions of this. and, And we see the outcomes. Yes. And and I think, um, as Dr. Pope mentioned, it's it's going to take some time for kids to get all these things that we want for them, to get back to their learning, to get back to socializing. All of that requires their brains to come out of fight or flight. It requires their brains to settle down. You know, the, the brain doesn't learn when it's overwhelmed and scared. 
So I think one of the most important things for us as parents is to recognize we have a great deal of influence here. If we are talking to our kids in a way that is catastrophic, if we're talking about, quote, lost learning, if we're talking about um, uh, emphasizing all of the, the, you know, the deficits, the losses, too much, our children are hearing that, they're sort of bathing in that. What we really want them to be hearing is this was really hard. We all did a great job getting through it. We're in a really good place right now where we can start to, to move back into life, to poke our necks out a little bit more. Let's take advantage of that while we can, right? And so for parents to model for kids, we've got this. And I know parents say to me, well, I'm not feeling that way. And I get it. I, we, we often are not. But we have to find a way to dig deep for our children right now because they're not going to recalibrate if we don't recalibrate. Yeah. Uh, before our break, I also want to bring in Hannah from Fairfax. Hannah, go ahead. Hello. Hey. What's on your mind? Hi. Yeah, so I'm a parent of teens and also an MFT psychotherapist who works with teens. And um, what I wanted to just share into the conversation was just how, kind of echoing some of what's been said, but just how important it is to really listen to especially teens um, that, um, yeah, just to kind of get that, like, us as parents and of our generation, we might not understand what it's like. Like, we, ne- we didn't go through a lot of the stuff, a lot of the things that these kids are going through now in this generation, even before COVID and then now with COVID as well. So to try to really um, take them seriously and um, honor them and listen to them and try to um, really show up for, for the teens. I mean, all kids, of course, but especially those teens, like, cause sometimes they withdraw and um, they might be going through a lot, but they bring their um, suffering to a parent or to a therapist um, to really, um, I don't know, just take it seriously and don't try not to project our, our kind of, past experiences onto them and try to really show up and listen and learn from them of what it's like. And that way they can get um, potentially the support and the treatment they need, because I think a lot of what they're getting even before COVID and now even more, is just a lot of um, influence from their surrounds and their culture and from social media that um, is a different level of stuff. So we just yeah. want to really All take right. them seriously. Thank you, Hannah. Great comment. We're talking about the pandemic and the toll it's taken on kids. We'll be back after a break. I'm Marisa Lagos and Fermina Kim, and you're listening to Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos, and for Mina Kim, we're talking about kids and the pandemic. And um, Dr. P- uh, Denise Clark Pope, I wanted to go to you um, about this question of sort of how parents can model behavior and 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 set a good tone for kids who might be ch- struggling with a lot of the challenges we've laid out. Right, and this is also in response to uh, right before the break, the the caller who called in about listening to your your children and. One of the things that we have at Challenge Success is a, a mnemonic aid, and it's PDF. It doesn't stand for portable document format. It <laughs> helps you remember, as a parent, the most important thing for your kid every day. And that stands for playtime, downtime, and family time. And PDF, playtime, downtime, and family time, turn out to be protective factors for kids. So we know that when parents model this in work with their families to have appropriate time for the kids to get these, they do better. They do better in school. They do better socially, emotionally, et cetera. So one of the things that I wanted to stress around the listening to kids is they need downtime. They can't be overscheduled and they may need some tools, some coping strategies like mindfulness, meditation, breathing, yoga to help get through this really difficult time. That's part of the downtime along with the sleep that they need. The playtime is getting back into that socialization with friends and with kids, right? Easing in. And the family time is probably the most protective factor. And that can happen during meals. That can happen, as I think Dr. Wilkins was mentioning, while you're watching TV together as a family or playing family games. But all of those things together, playtime, downtime, and family time, will really help ease kids back in from the stress and and the sort of chaotic feeling that they've been having into some sort of routine and some normalcy. Absolutely. We are talking about kids in the pandemic, and we want to hear about uh, your experience, your children's experience during COVID-19 and how you've helped them through it. Any lessons you've learned while parenting during the pandemic that you'll keep using and any positives? Um, I would like to to have some hope here today as well. Call us now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. You can also email your questions to forum at kqed.org. A one listener writes, my children are older and they lean towards being introverts. Online school allowed them to lean into their personalities. That was great, but also worrying. I was concerned that they would never make eye contact or make friends again. I ended up working really hard to set up playdates, even though they were in their teens, but I'm glad I did it because I think that real life interaction was key. Um, uh, Dr. Janelle Scott, I mean, can you talk about that? Like the, the the positive aspects of getting back to those actual social interactions that are not happening through a device? Sure. I mean, I think we've heard from Dr. Wilkins and Dr. Pope how important, particularly for teenagers, uh, peer interactions are. Teenagers uh, and adolescents, you know, make sense of the world and themselves. They figure out their identities uh, very much in relation to their peers. And so I think Uh, what the caller identified in terms of their strategy for their introverted teens uh, was spot on. And it is very important developmentally. Um, And um, again, to the degree that those things could be, those kinds of interactions could be handled uh, safely during uh, the most acute points of the pandemic in 2020 and 21, um, I think that certainly uh, advantaged uh, children. Um, And, you know, again, I think we also, in these conversations, we have to keep in mind um, how relatively advantaged some families are in being able to offer these choices. Um, 
you know, even the, the, the items that Dr. Pope mentioned in terms of downtime and playtime and family time, these are not things that are easily accessible for many families um, who are having to work multiple jobs, who don't have outdoor space um, that's safe for their mm -hmm. children to play in. And so I just wanna hold space for those families in this conversation as well. I think it's very important. Yeah, can you I, can I, oh, yes, go ahead? I 100% agree with Dr. Scott. And, and one of the things that we have to think about is what does playtime look like when we don't have those spaces in our community, right? Mm -hmm. How What does family time look like when parents are working multiple jobs, right? So we know that these are still protective factors for kids. How can we work with families of all different socioeconomic status to make sure that the kids are getting those protective factors within the real constraints that these communities are facing? Absolutely. And Dr. Wilkins, um, have we seen any positive things from this time? I mean, I know, you know, in our family, I, I do feel like, you know, there's been an opportunity for siblings to get closer um, and, and interact in different ways. Is there, I don't know, any good lessons we can take from this that maybe we should hold space for as the world sort of opens up more and goes back to whatever normal is? I, don't, I hate using that term. Sure, sure. I, I think there are many, um, you know, I've kind of moved away from the idea of silver linings to sort of silver learnings, like mm. what we've learned about ourselves. I've encouraged uh, the people I work with, the young people I work with to, to say like, wow, you had an opportunity, this sort of great pause to sit back and to reflect on what's important to you. And as the, the uh, listener mentioned, you know, for some kids leaning into their introversion and being okay with that became an incredible learning. Um, a lot of kids don't have FOMO anymore. <laughs> you know, they're, they're okay with not being in the pack. Um, we have to be mindful of kids going too far in the other direction, of course. But I think the growth and the creativity that we can see um, that our kids and our teenagers, I had teenagers who were meeting um, outdoors at 6 a.m. in the morning in the Marin Headlands to watch a sunset together before they went to school. They'd each sit in their cars, but they'd make a a donut of sorts, and they'd feel connected in the early days of the pandemic. Um, there were clearly kids, I have a niece who, who delved into her art in a way that time had never allowed her before, and who is now you know, identifying as an artist. Um, I do think that they are there, and I think that if we can kind of, again, move out of that threat mindset into seeing the creativity, the having curiosity for what's around us. I think people's ability to connect with nature has never been stronger. Um, I live near a, a slow street and people are still out walking that slow street at 5 p.m. as if we're still in the pandemic. And it's because they be, they made a ritual of being outdoors every day. So I think there, there are some positives. We never want to talk about them, um, you know, in a way that overshadows the tragedy and loss, of course. Um, but they're there. We just have to sort of be curious and look for them. Yeah, absolutely. I want to bring in a caller, Jack from San Francisco. Jack, go ahead. Hi, um, I'm Jack. I'm a 20-year-old educator in San Francisco. And one thing I just wanted to ask and sort of bring up um, is that, you know, in all these conversations during the pandemic and after the pandemic, you haven't really heard a lot of kids' voices specifically. You know, it's been a lot of experts sort of talking at or about kids. Um, and I, I'd be curious and, and want to hear more directly from kids because I talk to them every day in my work. Um, and I think their perspectives are, are being sort of pushed off to the side a lot. Um, I also just want to point out that kids have very little control over their lives before the pandemic and now after the pandemic. 
started. They had all what tiny bits of control they had over their lives, especially away from their parents at school, has been completely robbed from them. So I think that's an important point that we need to think about more is how do we give kids more agency and more autonomy in deciding how they want to live their own lives and what that looks like for them. Very interesting comment. Dr. Janelle Scott, you have any reaction to that? I I think Josh is raising an important point. Um, I think what we've seen around um, student advocacy uh, that's been um, centered on issues of learning in the pandemic, but also around these very serious issues that have been parallel to the pandemic. So, you know, our, our children watching the murder of George Floyd live on television and then on a loop on social media and the racial injustice um, actions around the world, our students have borne witness to that. And, and some of what uh, student voice and student advocacy has really amplified are some of the injustices within and out of school around policing mm. um, and um, and surveillance, uh, their, their sense of feeling surveilled uh, within and outside of school, um, and really an articulation of what they think school can and should be in terms of places where they can uh, honor their curiosity, uh, develop their identities as learners with deep interests in school and society. And so I think within these youth advocacy movements, we are very much hearing an articulation of what students want and need at this moment that is unfiltered by the voices of adults. And, and it's incumbent upon us to listen to those those uh, those movements, I think, especially. Absolutely. Unfortunately, this hour is during school, so <laughs> it's hard to get kids in here. Um, Karen Wright, so, uh, turning to something positive, is anyone conducting any studies on the growth patterns of teen boys? Our silver lining was that my son was able to sleep long nights and eat multiple times a day, <laughs> resulting in a astonishing growth. I see it in his friends as well. Lots of kids over six feet tall and only 16 years old. And I know also I'm hearing from teachers at our school that kids are just like want to snack more after being at home for a bit and having that option. Um, Another listener writes, I'm very mindful of the hardship many experienced during this time, but I also miss that time when the world stopped for many of us. What I've learned during the from the pandemic is that times with the kids is so important. The luxury of working from home has given me more time with my kids and I am grateful. Um, I I want to turn to another caller, Elsie from Napa. Elsie, go ahead. Hi. Good morning. Uh, my name is Elsie. I'm a mother of one in Napa. I'm one of the um, preschool pandemic parents. My girl was four when the world closed and is now in kindergarten. And as an only child, you know, those those – Two, those first two years were really hard because she was just home with us, with no other kid, uh, no pet. Um, the the perk to that, kind of the silver learning, as you were saying, is that I have been invited into her world and being able to have more downtime, to be able to prioritize that PDF, like you were saying, the playtime, the downtime, and the family time. We were stuck in that rat race before. And I just never had any, we never had any white space on our calendar. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm, I'm holding on to that, that silver learning that, you know, I, I know my daughter so much better than I would have otherwise, I feel. And that time together has really just kind of reprioritized um, my life. Yeah. That's great to hear. Are you uh, um Missing her now that she's at school? <laughs> is it... uh, yes and no. I mean, kindergarten days are short. Um, 
I am enjoying being able to reconnect with, you know, some of my my clients now that I have some time to myself. Um, But the best part is when I pick her up from school and she's saying bye to all of these all of these kids. Her world has gotten so much bigger, um, but also stayed very intimate. Absolutely. Elsie, thank you so much for your call. I, I identify with what you're saying as a as a mom of a kindergartner myself and um, also never want to go back to that time when we were all trying to juggle full-time jobs and right? being at home like, with the I kids. I don't know how many more games of, you know, I spy with my little eye I can play. Yes, absolutely. Thanks for the call, Elsie. Conversation. Bye. You're listening to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos in for Mina Kim. Uh, I want to bring in Anna from Los Gatos. Anna, go ahead. Hi, I'm also a single mother of one. He's in sixth grade now. And um, masking has been really important for us because of my health issues and his special needs. And I'm really concerned about what the specialists are saying today on the program. I mean, just this morning, there was a report about how the BA2 variant is now 25% of new cases, and there was a local news report about how it's really booming in Palo Alto currently. And yesterday, NPR had an article about how long COVID in children was really a very serious issue. So I don't understand why we're encouraging children to take off masks when we've only had, what, a couple of weeks of no huge spike. Just a couple of weeks. Thanks, Anna. Dr. Susan Wilkins, I want to go to you on this and and maybe also frame it in this idea of being flexible, because we do know that we're in a lull right now. The positivity rates are extremely low. Hospitalizations are low. And I think what, you know, some a lot of people who feel like we should allow kids to enjoy their freedom while they can, um, but maybe also to Anna's point, be ready to talk about the fact that it's not it, it may not be forever that we can go unmasked. Absolutely. And I think Anna makes a great point. And I don't think Anna's alone in feeling that way, Um, especially if you have somebody who's medically vulnerable in your family. We have to think differently and we have to extend a compassionate understanding to those kids who are going to still need to wear masks. So I like to think of this as we should not saying we should take the masks off. We're saying we can. Mm -hmm. Not everybody can, though. Some people can and some people cannot. And I think what we're going to have to talk about with kids at all ages, and hopefully the schools will be doing their part in this, is understanding why some people can't, right? So I think we, do, we are going to need to be nimble and flexible and ready to move back into a different scenario should that present itself, and it may. So, and I think we can talk with kids about, you know, when are some, some kids are saying, I'm okay with a mask at school. Like I'm used to this and I'm okay with it. And I think especially for older kids where we're not worried about things like uh, moral development or learning to read faces or speech, all the things that we are very concerned about for very young kids. You know, I think those kids may choose to keep it on. I mean, I, I'm still wearing my mask when I walk into stores. I, that doesn't bother me very much. But when I go to a dinner party, where I'm going to or, or have dinner with a friend or I'm going to want to connect and read their face and have an emotional uh, you know, moment, I'm, I'm going to choose not to wear the mask. So I think we can have conversations with kids who can take their masks off about you know, when, when is it worth it? When might it be worth it to keep it on? Because, yes, we are still living with uncertainty and we will be for some time. That's not going to go away. And as long as we all have a frontal lobe, worry is going to be here with us. 
And we, we can't sort of let worry drive the bus on our entire lives. We can't give the pandemic that much power. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Sean writes, more sleep. Uh, there was a big positive for us. Our child was able to sleep on his schedule and started picking up on things much faster than pre-pandemic. Um, uh, Dr. Denise Clark-Pope, are there things like that where, I mean, I know like in San Francisco, some of the start times for schools came uh, were adjusted later because of the new state law. Like, ha- have there been any positive things we've seen where kids are actually getting support that maybe we're going to continue forward? Yes, yes. This is something we're very excited about at Challenge Success. The late start law, now every public middle school and high school has to start later, which we know is better for kids. That's something that schools played around with during the pandemic. They also played around with changing their schedule in terms of how many courses a student takes at one time during a day. Um, We saw schools that went from having seven or eight courses where you go every 45 minutes to three or four courses that you have a little bit of a break between. You can have a little bit of a longer period and go deeper into the subject matter. Um, We have schools that realized that lunch was never long enough to get through the line. And particularly when they had to social distance, they made lunch longer, which allowed more time for kids to do peer-to-peer contact and peer-to-adult contact. And we've seen a, a much more priority on social emotional learning and belonging and recognizing that you can throw a lot of content a student's way, but if they don't feel safe, if they don't feel like they belong, if they don't feel like they are valued and listened to at the school, not a whole lot of learning is going to happen. And so um, the last thing I want to say is a lot of schools did what the one caller was saying, which was really turn to the students and say, hey, you're living this. What's the best way to organize your day? How can we help you? And to really focus on listening to the students more, it's been a primary uh, aspect of our work at Challenge Success. Well, we are going to have to leave it there. Listen to the kids. <laughs> Dr. Denise Clark of Stanford University, Dr. Janelle Scott of UC Berkeley, and Dr. Susan Wilkins, a psychologist in family practice. Thank you all so much for your insights and expertise this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Forum is produced by Judy Campbell, Ariana Prail, Blanca Torres, Grace Wan, and Caroline Smith with assistance from Cesar Saldana. Susan Britton is the lead producer for the 10 o'clock hour. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Katie McMurrin, and uh, this week Jim Bennett helped out. Our interns are Jennifer Ng and Paul C. Kelly Campos. And our executive editor is Ethan Tobin Lindsay. And our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Marisa Lagos. Have a great weekend. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.